A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, what's up, guys? Ryan here. It's a new year, and that means new goals for Somewhere in the Skies. We want to bring you bigger and better interviews and much, much more content. Our Patreon campaign is the most efficient and effective way of helping the show continue and grow. And in return, you get early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes, and exclusive content. I wanted to give those of you who aren't a part of our Patreon campaign a sneak peek of some of our bonus episodes that Patreon subscribers get at our second tier. And if you've ever wanted to help the show, now is the perfect time. So, I hope you enjoy this glimpse inside our Patreon rewards. And I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to subscribe, visit patreon.com slash skies. I hope you enjoy this episode, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop supporting Somewhere in the Skies. Sorry, I had to. Enjoy. Welcome to all Patreon subscribers. You have been granted top-secret majestic clearance to the following content. It is for your eyes and ears only. Thank you for your cooperation. It was 2.30 p.m., October 31st, 1963, when the saucer fell. Ruth Souza, nine-year-old daughter of Sonora Souza, was playing near the bank of the Parapava River when a loud roar frightened her and caused her to look up into the sky. What she saw coming at her was even more startling. A shiny, disc-shaped object moved slowly just above the treetop level. As it moved towards their house, it lost altitude and collided with a palm tree, growing between the house and the river. Unable to move, the little girl watched awestruck as the shiny craft seemed to try to gain altitude as it moved over the water of the river. It rocked violently and maneuvered awkwardly, as if trying to regain stability. Then... It suddenly dropped directly into the water of the river. Ruth ran to her mother, who had come out at the sound of the tremendous roar. Had there been no other effects besides the roar, the disc-shaped object that the little girl described might have been written off as the construction of a child's imagination. But when Mrs. Souza reached the river, the water where her daughter said the object had fallen was boiling violently churning up mud and other debris from the bottom. Raul Souza, Ruth's uncle, who was working about a hundred yards away from the spot, came running to the house at the sound of the roar. As he looked out over the river, he too witnessed the strange, boiling, churning water. But even with these witnesses, Ruth's story might have gone unbelieved had not verification come from across the river. Fishermen, Working the opposite bank of the river described exactly the same phenomena that Ruth had. 
they all heard the roar and saw the craft as it moved from the river, then plunged into it. Sonora de Souza's home is located in the Sao Paulo province of Brazil, and a report of the sighting and of the fall of the object immediately went to the city of Sao Paulo. Police from the nearest town, Aguape, went to the scene at once and questioned the witnesses, while the incident was still fresh in their minds. The story they pieced together described a disc of small thickness, about one meter, but about five meters in diameter. By all accounts, it had resembled an aluminum basin. It had been very bright, and in broad daylight, it had looked almost luminous. When first sighted, the craft was moving very slowly, and at no time did it show any ability to accelerate at any great rate. The roar that announced its coming was almost deafening and seemed to indicate that the craft possessed great power. As it moved toward the Souza house, it appeared to be having difficulty maintaining its altitude. After several erratic movements, the power had seemed to give out, and the disc had plunged toward the river. All the witnesses agreed that the river had erupted violently and the water had begun to boil. The craft did not stay on top of the water for any time at all but settled immediately beneath the surface, indicating that it was of greater average density than water. The depth of the water at the spot is 12 feet, but where the water stops, the silt begins, and the mud layer on the bottom is about 15 feet thick and is mixed with clay. The disc had stuck to the top of a palm tree next to Mrs. D'Souza's house before it had moved over the river. The police observed that something had freshly gouged a chunk out of the tree, about 15 feet above the ground. Whatever the object's identity, it had been very substantial, heavier than water, and in trouble before it plunged into the river. The incident caused an immediate sensation in Brazil. UFO investigators had waited for years for a saucer to land or crash in order to establish their claims to the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. This seemed to be the perfect opportunity. The craft had sunk in a river, but it had not fallen on military property. It seemed to be just a matter of recovering it where it had fallen. The first attempt to retrieve the disc was made by a diving instructor, Quatano Hermano Iavane, with two companions, Peter Runger and Manuel Batista Andrade. They spent four hours searching the bottom in several efforts, but they were hampered by the mud. Although the exact spot of descent into the river was marked, exactly what had happened to the disc-shaped object once it had passed under the surface was a matter of speculation. One possibility is that it had sunk straight down into the mud and silt layers on the bottom. Yet, if it had not moved immediately into the mud, the current might have pushed the object toward the ocean. It also could have been moved under its own power underwater, before finally coming to rest on the river bottom. Another attempt to recover the disc was made by a second team of divers, led by a man named Gigi Del Maschio. Although much special equipment was brought in by the determined group of men, they had as little luck as the first team. Once again, the mud on the river bottom was the biggest obstacle to successful diving. Several theories concerning what happened to the disc have been advanced by the residents of Aguape and by the divers who have gone in search of the object. The most immediate possibility is that it may have been washed downstream. Most of the witnesses to the crash think that this is highly unlikely. 
The way the disc plunged into the river, it was probably a very heavy object. Those believing that the disc had come from some point in outer space have suggested that it may have been secretly retrieved some night immediately following the crash. But eyewitnesses to the crash contest this position, pointing out that immediately after the craft hit the water, mud was spewed up, which would indicate that it had probably buried itself deep in the silt, making such an operation extremely difficult. Furthermore, any mysterious activity in the alerted Iguape area surely would have been observed by the residents. The remaining possibility, and the one which many people consider to be the most likely, is that the disc is still there. Perhaps it moved with the current underwater, or even under its own power, but it is probably buried somewhere between the banks of the Parapava, still settling to the bottom of the 15-foot layer of enveloping, almost impenetrable mud. With the reports of the witnesses and the evidence of a notched palm tree, the facts seem to indicate that an unidentified flying disc had had navigational trouble over Brazil and had been forced down in the Parapava River. Whether it was manned or operated by remote control is unknown, but the witnesses agree that it seemed to be moving under its own power when it plunged into the water. It forms another mystery, yet to be unraveled. It was on the morning of January 18, 1978, when New Jersey State Police requested entry onto McGuire Air Force Base. Along with the adjacent Fort Dix base, UFOs had been reported earlier in the evening. But what the police said they were looking for was far stranger than just lights in the sky. When asked just exactly why the state troopers needed access to the base, they explained that an MP at Fort Dix had seen a low-flying object that had passed over his car. As he looked back to the road below, he hit the brakes in a panic. Standing in front of his vehicle in the headlights was a small being with a large head, black eyes, and a very slender body. The MP panicked getting out of the car and pulling his 45 automatic. He demanded that the being lay on the ground, and when it didn't comply, he began to shoot. Wounded, the being fled the scene, supposedly hopping the fence between the bases. It then ran down a deserted airfield runway at McGuire, and eventually fell to the ground, dying. The guard on duty at this point, one Sergeant Jeff Morse, allowed the police onto the runway to search for the being. There, they found the body crouched in a fetal position, not breathing. It was indeed dead. Shocked, but keeping with protocol, they began to rope off the area. Suddenly, a group of military officers in blue berets arrived, distancing Morse from the area. Morse watched on from afar as this new group, clad in blue berets, whom he'd never seen before, seemed to take charge of the situation. UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield once interviewed Morse about the being itself. Stringfield stated the following about how Morse described it. Quote, Never close enough to observe details such as facial features or its hands and feet, he did recall that under the glare of truck headlights, the skin of the unclad hairless body 
was wet, shiny, and snake-like. The entity was about four feet in height, with a large head, slender torso, thin arms and legs, and overall, a grayish-brown coloration. End quote. Stringfield also inquired about the retrieval operation itself, as these Blue Beret officers worked their secretive magic. Stringfield stated that, quote, While on patrol, Morse watched the Blue Beret specialists spray the corpse from a portable tank and cover it with a white sheet. Before the body was carefully placed onto a platform and a wooden frame built around it. This was finally placed into a large square silver metal container, about 10 by 10 feet, with indistinguishable blue markings. End quote. After this, a C 141 cargo aircraft landed on the site. The beam was loaded on board, and it has been suspected that it took off towards Wright Patterson Air Force Base, supposedly the same base the 1947 Roswell crash bodies were shipped off to as well. Morse and the police officer were separated, and both were told that if they ever spoke of what they'd seen that day, they would immediately be stripped of their duties in their respective jobs. It was two days later when Morse and a few other witnesses were shipped off to Wright-Patterson and received intense interrogations. In statements by Morse many years later, he said, quote, They told me about my duty to keep my mouth shut. I signed a form and it's supposed to bind me for life. Morse was brought back to McGuire Air Force Base, debriefed by his superiors, and the incident was never spoken of again. It didn't take long for Morse to start asking around about just exactly what he'd seen that night by other witnesses. When word of this got out to his superiors, many of the witnesses were shipped overseas, including Morse, who soon found himself stationed at Okinawa on desk duty. To this day, he admits that he's been constantly threatened not to speak of the event and that the military has gone to great lengths to keep him quiet, including personality and professional attacks, making it difficult for Morse to find employment in law enforcement. If this wasn't extraordinary or incredible enough, another key witness did come forward to corroborate this event. Major George Filer, now retired, was stationed at McGuire at the same time as an intelligence officer. While not being present at the actual incident, he heard firsthand about it the following morning. In an interview with ABC News, Filer stated that, quote, Our security police went out there and found him, the alien, at the end of the runway, dead. They asked me to brief the general staff. While this briefing was later cancelled, Filer remained convinced that this event was truly bizarre, and the joint bases were doing everything in their power to contain it and keep everyone silent. While he couldn't prove that this alien being was of extraterrestrial origin, word around the base continued to spread, and all were convinced that this was a genuine UFO landing, and the subsequent death of its extraterrestrial occupant. So... Did a panicked, trigger-happy MP actually shoot and kill an alien that night? The truth may never be known. The lid on this and so many other apparent incidents of this ilk have been so tightly wound shut that those involved fear the worst for their jobs or perhaps even their lives. And I have to admit, this one is pretty hard to swallow. While we may have statements, we have absolutely no evidence or documents 
to back any of this up. That's ufology at its best and worst. But if this case of an alien termination is true, then we have more to fear than just military threats. We have an alien race expecting one of their own to eventually come home. They just probably weren't expecting it to be in a body bag. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. An Army Reserve UH-1 helicopter cut through the night sky on October 18, 1973. The four-man crew, Captain Lawrence Coyne, Lieutenant Arrigo Jesse, Sergeant John Healy, and Robert Janicek, had traveled from Cleveland to Columbus earlier that evening for a regular standard medical examination. Following that, they would board their vehicle at 10.30 p.m. and leave for their return journey back to Cleveland. It was while they were over Mansfield that the night took a strange turn. They were flying at 2,500 feet, the mixture of woods, hills, and farmland below them. It was Healy who first spotted the strange red light to their left. It was at some distance, but it looked too bright to be a standard aircraft light. He would keep the sighting to himself, but keep his eye on it. Several moments later, Janicek noticed the red light also. When it began to close in on their craft, he informed Captain Coyne. Believing themselves to be on a collision course with this object, Coyne thrust the helicopter down, descending around 500 feet. As he did so, he would request information from the control tower in Mansfield. A few seconds after initial radio contact with the tower, their communications began to be interrupted. The red object was still heading in their direction. I looked out the window and observed this light moving at a very excessive speed, in excess of 600 knots. Coming at the helicopter, it looked like a locked-on missile. The men prepared for impact. Just as the object was about to crash into the helicopter, it came to a complete stop, directly in front and slightly above them. The thing that makes this particular evening a unique experience was that it was almost a mid-air collision with an object that we or you know as a UFO. We did not know it was such until it was on top of the helicopter, and that took just a matter of minutes. 
The metallic, cigar-shaped object hung in the air, filling the entire windshield. The crew would estimate the object to be around 60 feet in length and around 20 feet high. All four men looked on in awe of this huge, otherworldly craft. Suddenly, a green light swung from underneath and hit the windshield of the helicopter. According to Coin, the whole cabin turned green as the light illuminated everything in a bright green wash. After a few seconds, the light went out and the object moved up and to the west at great speed. Coin, who had the helicopter's height locked throughout the incident at about 1,700 feet, realized they were suddenly at a height of 3,500 feet. They had climbed almost 2,000 feet in a matter of seconds and never even knew it. Suddenly, a bump nudged the helicopter, and instinctively, Coin climbed slightly, the vehicle now back in his control. The crew, still shaken, continued on to Cleveland, where they would make an official report of the incident. However, unlike many encounters involving aircraft pilots, military, or commercial, Coin would give his report to the media upon landing. The object that I viewed that particular evening had a high degree of technology, it was composed of a structure and a design that we do not have. The object can move through the atmosphere without causing any turbulence. It can move at high speeds below 10,000 feet. There are no vertical or horizontal stabilizers, no landing gear, no source of propulsion reflected on the craft. It looks like it, it, it could go to fly in space. A local Cleveland reporter ran the story the following day. Shortly after, Coyne appeared on the Dick Cavett Show and told of the encounter to a national audience. It's because of his actions that the account is largely seen as credible. It also gave the military no chance to cover up or ridicule the incident. And even if they had tried, several people below also witnessed the bizarre events unfold. There were several witnesses on the ground who would corroborate the pilot's accounts. One of them was Jim Carver and his family, who were driving to the rural home just outside of Mansfield. Along with Jim were his three siblings and his mother, Emma. It was shortly after 11 p.m. when they noticed a strange red light in the sky above them. It appeared to be getting closer. Emma turned the car onto Route 430. As she did so, both she and her four children could now see two lights above. One was red, the other green. As each of them watched the lights in fascination, they noticed the sound of an approaching helicopter. Emma pulled the car to the side of the road, and she and her children stepped out to watch the events above. They could see the huge cigar-shaped object hovering over the helicopter. Suddenly, they witnessed the bright green light shoot from the underside and bathe not only the entire cockpit in fluorescent green, but everything in sight. As the crew reported, after a few seconds, the light went out and the object moved away, casting a brief flash of bright white light as it did. Incidentally, there was a spike in UFO sightings throughout the U.S. in October of 1973. In 1988, almost 15 years later, a new witness came forward with more information. Jeanne Elias, from the southeast Mansfield area, recalled laying in bed watching the 11 p.m. news when the sound of an extremely low-flying helicopter made her stop watching the TV. 
She was used to low-flying aircraft, as their house was only six miles from the Mansfield Airport runway. However, this aircraft sounded lower than normal, and she feared an imminent crash. As she panicked, she hid her head under the pillow on her bed. She could hear her teenage son, John, calling to her from his room next door. The loud rumbling sound had awoken him, and a bright green light filled his entire room from outside. Following an appeal in the Mansfield News Journal in 2015, for witnesses to the Mansfield incident, many people did come forward with new information. One was Brian Stevens, who at the time of the incident was 13 years old. He would recall seeing a red-orange ball that he couldn't take his eyes off of as he walked along Ohio 39. Another new witness, Glenn Stout, worked at Mansfield Tire. He and several co-workers were on a break at the back dock when a crazy-looking light sped towards a helicopter, nearly crashing. One particularly bizarre detail offered by Stout was his home electric bill for the month following the incident was only $4. He wondered if this surprisingly low bill had a connection to the UFO overhead that evening. Bring on all the UFO encounters here in New York City, please. My electric bill's insane. Judith Hamm was yet another person who witnessed the bizarre events in 1973. She claimed to have almost screamed out loud as she witnessed what she thought was two planes about to crash. Hamm believed it was a military plane until reading stories of the encounter afterward. But let's return to where this all began with Captain Coyne and the rest of the helicopter crew. Just what was it that was seen that evening in the skies over Mansfield, Ohio, may never be known. While it isn't beyond the realm of possibility that the military has more information about the case, the fact that Coyne bypassed potential sensor-heavy channels by speaking directly with the media suggests the incident is mostly intact. Whether or not there was some clandestine military involvement somewhere in the timeline of the episode is open to debate. And just like many other UFO cases, it also remains unexplained. I would like to stress one important fact, and that is there is approximately 20 years of Army aviation experience between the four men on board the helicopter that night. We have been trained to follow procedures and regulations in reporting incidents regardless of how they're accepted. And we tried to follow those procedures. And we reported the incident as it occurred and have avoided any speculation on the subject. Sometime before 7 p.m. on the evening of February 23rd, 1975, two seven-year-old boys... Masato Kawano and Katashiro Yamahata were roller skating near the Hinode housing estate in Kamemachi, Kofu City, when they noticed a pair of glittering orange UFOs cavorting in the sky above them. The enthralled boys stared in astonishment as the larger of the two objects broke off and flew northwest toward Mount Otago, while the smaller craft slowly descended to the ground landing amongst the props of a vineyard located behind the estate. The boys later confirmed that despite the distance, the descending aerial anomaly could be heard emitting an odd series of crackling or ticking sounds 
not unlike that of a Geiger counter. It goes without saying that the curious youngsters wasted no time in removing their skates and charging into the vineyard in order to get a better look at this now earthbound object. As the second graders approached the formerly orange spacecraft, they noted that it now resembled a dome atop a silver disc, which stood approximately seven feet high and was roughly 15 feet in diameter. This now classically shaped flying saucer was perched on three ball-shaped legs and had what the children described as strange characters embossed on the metallic surface of its hull. While inspecting the craft, both Kawano and Yamahata were astounded to see a hatch open on the side of the craft and a ladder automatically extending down to the ground below. The boys stared in stunned silence as a peculiar, long-armed humanoid began to disembark from the ship. It was at that moment that the boys noticed another slightly smaller, though virtually identical, entity that remained inside what was apparently the object's button and lever-filled controlled room. Kawano and Yamahata later reported that the creatures were both approximately four feet tall and were clad in a glowing or reflective silver uniform. They also depicted the entities as having large pointed ears and uncovered feet ending in two toe-like protuberances. The creatures were also described as being dark brown and smothered in wrinkles so dense they obscured any noticeable facial features, save three distinct, nearly two-inch long, metal fangs. While the metal fangs are a new twist, the wrinkly skin might ring a bell for those who've studied the Pascagoula alien abduction. The boys also claimed that the being had emerged from the craft, had been carrying a long object slung over its shoulder, which they stated resembled a rifle. This strange visitor from out of this world surveyed the terrain outside the saucer, oblivious to the spellbound duo openly ogling at it. Oblivious, that was, until it sharply turned and placed one of its claws onto Yamahata's shoulder, patting him twice and uttering a series of sounds that sounded to the boys like a tape recorder running backwards. At this point, Yamahata collapsed to the ground, paralyzed by terror. As soon as Yamahata fell to the ground, Kawano, exhibiting a commendable degree of courage for one so young, rapidly pulled his friend up into his shoulders and carried him away from these potentially vampiric alien assailants as swiftly as he could. Upon returning to the estate, the now almost hysterical boys immediately informed their mothers about this bizarre close encounter. Their curious, yet almost certainly incredulous mothers followed their clearly perturbed sons to the back of the apartment, where, much to their shock, confirmed seeing an orange, strobe-like light pulsating in the vineyard. The boys tried to convince their mothers to investigate the area, but they sagely decided to keep their distance from the inexplicable object. The mothers later testified that the unusual light show continued for another five minutes, before the UFO rocketed skyward with a burst of light so brilliant that the eyewitnesses were compelled to avert their eyes. It should be noted that while Yamahata and Kawano were the only ones to have actually seen the allegedly E.T. entities, their classmate, eight-year-old Ichiro Minagishi, 
also reported spying a shining saucer flying toward the Hinode housing estate while riding in a car with his parents near the Kofu Bypass, approximately a half an hour before the boys claimed to have encountered the UFO. Later eyewitnesses also included both a janitor and a local woman driving in the area. The following day, Kawano and Yamahata had a captivated audience of students and teachers at the Yamashiro Elementary School as they drew pictures of the beings and retold the harrowing tale of their alien encounter. It wasn't long before alien fever had infected the entire student body, and in an effort to quell the escalating mania, schoolmaster Nabayoshi Kaneko, with what appears to be a surge of open-mindedness, decided that they would inspect the area for themselves. The school officials, armed with whatever scientific paraphernalia they could get their hands on, made their way to the scene of the event. Upon their arrival, they noted that two solid concrete posts had been pushed over at the landing site. It was determined that the boys would have been unable to accomplish this task of intergalactic vandalism on their own. This investigative team also discovered what they referred to as landing traces, including soil impressions as well as a ring pattern in the dirt near the broken concrete posts where the UFO had allegedly landed. One school teacher even claimed to have discovered radioactivity within the circular patch. Following the event, both boys were questioned in depth by their parents, their schoolmaster, as well as noted UFO investigator, Masaru Mori. Their stories remain disturbingly consistent. Not surprisingly, when asked what the orange lights might have been, authorities at Civil Aviation Bureau of Transportation Ministry claimed that the UFOs were nothing more than the lights of YS-11 propeller planes, which often flew at an altitude of a thousand meters and was visible to the naked eye. These aviation experts apparently reserve comment as to whether or not this conventional aircraft could transform into a silver dome, as well as assume the form of small, pointy-eared, fanged humanoids. Keen-eyed sci-fi fans and skeptics, including researcher Benturo Yamaguchi, have noted that an alien appearing in an episode of Japan's Ultra 7 a popular live-action special effects television series bears at least a superficial resemblance to the Kofu humanoid, minus the metallic fangs. Known as Alien Hook, the unusual entity appeared in 1968, many years before this event occurred. Was this all an elaborate prank in the imagination of two young boys at school? Or did they truly encounter alien vampires? No matter the case, this will truly go down as one of the strangest and scariest encounters ever to come out of Japan, and perhaps even the world. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.